So I grew up in a time that was a little bit like the time now in the sense that my childhood, late childhood, early teen years were the late 60s, early 70s. And it was a turbulent time. You know, there was assassination of Martin Luther King. There was the civil rights movement still going on. There was the assassination of Robert Kennedy. There was a 1968 election. There's all this stuff going on with the Vietnam War and the Vietnam War protests. There's riots. There's a sexual revolution happening. And it just seemed like, for me, because I would watch the news with my dad every night since I was like eight years old, so I kind of had a real sense of what was going on as much as a kid and then an early teen can understand, it seemed like to me that, you know, Watergate, all that kind of stuff, that adults were idiots. Like every adult is an idiot and that there's not an adult in the room when it comes to world affairs. And it kind of feels a little bit like that now. And it was, for me, a time of just depression. I didn't go to school for like two months. You know, I was raised in a home. My parents were secular and they kind of bought into the new philosophy of, well, if he doesn't want to go to school, he doesn't have to go to school. I was nine years old at that time. But I didn't go for like two months. They took me to a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a neurologist, and they all, you know, said, yeah, leave him home until he's ready to go and all this kind of stuff. My dad finally just said enough and dragged me to school. And, uh, but that was kind of my childhood years, my teenage years. And then for whatever reason, my brother had become a Christian and came home from college and had explained to me in my early teen years what it meant to be a Christian, what he believed, what the Bible was and who Jesus was and why, if I could give my life to him, that he would be my savior, he would be my Lord, and what that meant for my life. And I don't know why, because I didn't believe any of that a week before, but then for whatever reason that night, I completely believed it and and never looked back. I mean, we all struggle with doubts, but I've never looked back from that commitment. And I remember for me, again, my parents were secular. They weren't happy that I was a Christian, so I had to kind of sneak Uh, to read my Bible, but I started reading my Bible. I remember reading the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. I just kind of creased the page and started reading the Gospel of Matthew. And I'd never read it before. I'd never read anything about Jesus before. I'd seen movies, but I'd never actually read the Bible. And and the Jesus who talked and did the miracles and talked and, and, and had conversations with people, and that figure was so compelling to me. It was, in some sense, not to be too cute, but it was the first adult that ever entered my room. Somebody's in charge. Somebody knows what they're doing. They're not anxious. They're in control. And especially when I got to Matthew 24, which is really one of the weirdest chapters in the entire Bible. And I didn't understand much of it. But what I understood was that Jesus talked about the future and eventually the end times in a way that... He was, at least I could tell, confident about it and that he was in control of it. And even though I didn't understand it, as long as he does, that was fine with me. And I remember a day particularly when I was reading Matthew 24 and reading this, and it just really just gripped me one day when I came home from school by myself. And I was so struck that all of life is this bigger story. It's not this chaotic thing and who knows what the future is going to be and it's all up for grabs and nobody's in charge. It is this story that has incredible chaos happening and God is in charge and it's heading a particular direction. 
And I just, for whatever reason, it was one of those things like when I first became a Christian, I don't know why, but I, I was just overwhelmed with a really strong sense of belief and that I was inside of a bigger story and that that was the context of my life and that I, I wanted to be on the right side of that story. So I got on my knees. I remember getting on my knees and you know, right there at the couch, putting my hands and my head on the couch and just crying. God, I'm so sorry that I haven't been living for you. I'm so sorry I want to live for you. And it was just sort of a little revivalistic moment in my life. We're doing Daniel and we're finishing up the last three chapters, Daniel 10, 11, and 12. Now, we're doing three chapters because it's all one literary unit. Every other chapter in Daniel has been its own literary unit. This three-chapter uh, thing is one, still one story. So it seemed like a good thing at the time back in the summer to say, okay, we'll just do that as one sermon until I realized I'm the one to do it. And then I, until I realized when I started working on it, you can't do this sermon and this, these three chapters in one sermon. So I'm going to pick, I picked an idea, but there's a lot of other stuff I wanted to talk about, but I picked an idea that relates to what I just said, because when we understand Daniel 10 through 12, it is that kind of thing where it presents this story and this future that God is in complete control of, and it does for us exactly what Matthew 24 did for me when I was 16 years old. And so let me get into it, but before we do, it starts the same way a lot of the other chapters start. It gives a date and a place. The Bible's placing itself in real human history, always. And even the weirdest part of Daniel is doing exactly that. It says it's the third year of Cyrus the king. Cyrus took over what became the Persian Empire. He united factions. It became the Persian Empire. He takes over the, what was the Babylonian, Neo-Babylonian Empire. And so this is the last year of what, this is the very latest that we see Daniel in the book of Daniel. This is three years after Cyrus took over Babylonia. Daniel has risen to a place of power because he could be trusted for his wisdom and integrity. And it says he's in this area that's not in Babylon, the city, but he's still in the region of Babylonia, but he's up in the northeast area. Is that, am I doing it right? Yeah, northeast area, uh, this Tigris River, this river that's outside the city, and he's there, and we pick up in verse 7 because all of a sudden Daniel sees something that absolutely terrifies him. Verse 7 says this. It says, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. When he says vision, he's not talking about having a dream like in other chapters. He's talking about an appearance of something. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So those who were with him, it's a little bit like the Apostle Paul when he encountered Jesus. Those who were with him uh, didn't hear him, didn't see, didn't see him, but they knew something was happening. And so you have... They heard something but didn't hear him speak. Here you have these people that are with Daniel sense a presence of something, of someone. And it's a presence that brings incredible fear to them. They don't see what Daniel sees, but they sense something that makes them want to run and hide. And so Daniel says, it's a little bit comical. Daniel says in verse 8, so I was left alone. You know, Daniel, thanks guys, friends like this. So I was left alone gazing at this great, vision, this 
appearance of something. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Now, he goes on to describe what he saw, and it's a, you know, it's a lot of language that is just sort of the, the symbols of, of this incredible spiritual being. And the whole chapter of 10 is Daniel trying to recover from this. It keeps saying this kind of stuff right here. I was left, strength left my face. I turned deathly pale and was helpless. And he has that kind of language all the way through Daniel 10. He can't seem to recover physically, psychologically, emotionally to what he's having, what's right in front of him. And eventually the being, the angel, uh, talks to him and says this in verse 12, says, do not be afraid. So he's trying to get him back on his feet so that he can receive uh, a message and write it down. He writes it down in the book we see from chapter 12. Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. So what Daniel's been doing, he says, three weeks prior to this, is in prayer, and he's fasting, and he's trying to ask God what's going on, because when Cyrus, the first year of Cyrus, when he took over Babylon, he received, he, he inherited all the exiles that the Babylonians had taken from Jerusalem, and he decided to let them go back to Jerusalem, and he decided to fund their journey back and the rebuilding of the temple from the royal treasury. So that was a great moment. That was prophesied in Jeremiah, and Daniel's pumped because it's all happening. It's going exactly as the God's word said it would. But then by the third year of Cyrus, not so much. They had, you can read about this in Ezra 4 through 6, but they had run into opposition and it wasn't going well. The temple wasn't being rebuilt. And so Daniel's saying, What's going on? I thought it was supposed to be this way. How come it's not being this way? And so the angel's saying, I'm here to answer your question. And then he says, Now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people. So everything that this angel says to him in Daniel chapter 11 is that issue right there. What's going to happen to the faithful people of God, the faithful Jews who still worship and are faithful to Yahweh in the future? What's gonna happen in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come? And then what this angelic being does is give this incredibly detailed prophecy of exactly what's going to happen as it relates to Jerusalem and the areas around Jerusalem and everything that affects Jerusalem. He gives incredibly detailed prophecy of everything that's going to happen in the next 370 years. I mean, so ridiculously accurate. He talks about there's going to be a Persian king who comes and gets filled with himself and his wealth that he's gonna take on Greece and attack the kingdom of Greece which is exactly what Xerxes, the Persian emperor, did in 480 B.C., and he took over all these territories that were once Greek cities and Greek territories. And then it's talking about how that's going to cause another king to arise, which was what happened 150 years later with Alexander the Great, who said, I'm going to take back and destroy Persia and take back our Greek cities. So in 330 B.C., Alexander the Great has this incredible conquest of northern Africa, 
of the areas that we now call modern-day Turkey and Palestine and goes and conquers the Persian Empire, kills the Persian king, sets himself up as the Persian Empire and the emperor of all this, all the way to India and into India. He conquers that whole area in 11 years. He starts when he's 20 years old, and then right after he conquers it, he dies at the age of 33. Nobody knows of what except he had a fever, and he died. And he died in Babylon, the city of Babylon, which is kind of weird. And so Alexander the Great dies, and this is all said in Daniel chapter 11. And he's not going to be able to leave it to his descendants. He has to end up leaving it to four of his generals, which is exactly what happens. Two of them become generals that are fighting each other. One is the general that's in Egypt, and his, he was one of Alexander's friends, Ptolemy. And his dynasty becomes what this chapter calls the kingdom of the south. There's another general called Seleucus, and his dynasty becomes the kingdom of the north. And so for the next 150 years, they're fighting each other, and Jerusalem is right in the middle. And so Jerusalem is always being conquered by an invading army, and it's always going badly for them. Rome comes onto the scene, the ships from the west. This is all said in chapter 11 of Daniel, when Daniel was written in 530 B.C., This vision was the third year of Cyrus, which was 536 B.C., describing events in 480 B.C., events in 330 B.C., and now events after that with all these dynasties that came out of Alexander the Great's four generals. And then a big chunk of it focuses on one man. And his name, he's one of the descendants of Seleucus in the Seleucid dynasty, and his name is Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes. And he, because Rome embarrassed him and he can't do what he wants to do, he becomes incredibly angry. All this is said in Daniel 11, and it's all true in history as well. He becomes incredibly angry and takes his anger and frustration out on the Jews. And he has one goal, to not have a believing Jew left alive. He doesn't care if you're Jewish. He's not anti-Jewish. He's anti-Yahweh. And so as long as you become a pagan and worship Zeus, all is well. If you try to worship Yahweh, you're going to be killed. And he becomes incredibly effective at it. It's like no time in Israel's history where they're being wiped out and they're almost going to be annihilated. I mean, the believing Jews, not the Jews, but the believing Jews are almost going to be completely annihilated. So I'll give you an example. So this, this says in, in chapter 11 about Antiochus Epiphanes, his armed forces, and this is 167 AD, or excuse me, anytime I say AD, I always mean BC. This is 167 BC, and, and his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress. So they, they desecrate the temple fortress by sacrificing a pig at the altar and sacrifice it to Zeus and do all these things for pagan worship in the temple, and then they make it so that you can't offer sacrifices or you'll be killed. If you try to offer anything to Yahweh, you'll be killed. If you try to circumcise your child, that child will be hung on a hook right in front of you and killed, and then you'll be killed. If you try to have observe the Sabbath, you'll be killed. If you, if you don't eat pig, if you try to keep the Jewish food laws, you'll be killed. If you have any copy of the scriptures on you, you'll be killed. And so you have these societies then going out into the desert mountains and going into caves and hiding their scrolls 
of Hebrew scriptures in jars. We call it one thing we found in the mid-1900s, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's these very ancient 2,000-year-old scrolls, copies of the Hebrew scriptures and other, Hebrew, other Jewish writings because of this period and times after that. So you have this going on, and so it says, he would, the, the, the covenant, let me just read it again. Uh, let's go back to the, the, the thing before this. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. They will set up this phrase right here, the abomination that causes desolation. In other words, it almost brings to desolation the number of Yahweh-believing people in Jerusalem, in Israel. So the next verse says, with flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. If you become a pagan, all is well. Here's some money. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. And what's happening here is that this is going to be a time where it's almost going to be a wipeout. So God appears to Daniel, and he tells Daniel what's going to happen in Daniel 11. Ridiculously detailed so. So that by the time this happens, the people of God won't be wiped out so that 160 years later, Jesus can be born in an Israel where there's believing people, believing parents, and people who can become his followers. But there's a Jewish faith alive 167 years later. It's so unbelievably, ridiculously detailed that skeptical scholars of antiquity, unbelieving Bible scholars, which most Bible scholars are, especially at universities, not seminaries, and, and it's so ridiculous, and the implications of it, that if God could tell Daniel this in 536 B.C., all these details that happened until 167 B.C., the implications of that are that the God of the Bible is completely real, he's in control, he predicted the future, but they come from a presupposition that says that can't happen because prophecy can't happen Therefore, it didn't happen. Therefore, Daniel has to have been written after 165, 167 BC. There's no real good evidence for that, except there's verses 36 through 45 in chapter 11 that aren't really talking about Antiochus Epiphanes anymore. It's talking about later what the New Testament will call the Antichrist. So there is that section that doesn't come true because it's talking about the future. But everything up to verse 36 comes exactly true. There's problems with that. It would make sense. I mean, yeah, okay, I guess it was written after the fact. I guess it wasn't really prophecy. It's pretending to be prophecy, but it's just simply going back and telling us history. Except the Dead Sea Scrolls that we found in the 1940s have Hebrew scriptures in them, and in all the collection of the Hebrew scriptures, Daniel's part of them. For those to be end up in the Dead Sea Scrolls and to end up in the Hebrew Scriptures, it had to have been part of the Hebrew Scriptures early enough to be universally accepted as Hebrew Scripture. And you have the Septuagint that's translating the Hebrew into Greek that started in the 200 BC, and Daniel's in the Septuagint as Hebrew Scripture. 
And you have situations where the books that were written between the Old and New Testament, we call it the Apocrypha. It's not scripture, but they're, they're writings. And all the, many of them that quote Daniel are quoting Daniel as part of the Hebrew scriptures. And the very earliest copies we have of the collection of the Hebrew scriptures, whether it's the Dead Sea Scrolls or other things in the Septuagint, all have Daniel as part of the Hebrew scriptures, which makes it almost impossible, I think impossible, to have been written any time before 200 B.C. I'm not the only one that thinks that. The Bible scholars, that, like the Bible scholar that's an Old Testament scholar, that his name's Dale Ralph Davis, writes in his commentary on Daniel, he says this, he says, the latest possible date for Daniel, the latest possible date for Daniel for it to be what we see in antiquity and all the lists that we see it in, in ancient lists, the latest possible date for Daniel would range between 300 and 220 BC. That's the, that's the latest it could have been written and made it in all the lists that we have in antiquity like the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, things like that. And that, um, let's go back to that last, and that still leaves critics with the problem of predictive prophecy. In other words, even if it was written here, most of the stuff that Daniel 11 talks about happened after here. The details that it has are details that happened after 220 B.C., and so, he goes on to say, he goes, I can't claim to prove a sixth century date. I can't prove it. But I see too many problems with the second century, 165 BC position. It seems better to me to take the naive view, I'm just a dumb believer, and, and posit a date of 530 BC. If that's the case, what we're reading in Daniel 11 is really ridiculously Incredible. But that's not why I believe it's, 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 it's true. It was written in 530 necessarily. I believe it because Jesus quotes from Daniel a lot. Like it, five times specifically, but then alludes to it 130 times. Now, if Jesus rose from the dead, what he believed about Daniel is probably the truth. If Jesus, Jesus did the miracles that he did and rose from the dead... What Jesus said, everything he said is true. And so if Jesus believed Daniel was part of Scripture and written by Daniel in 530-something B.C., then that kind of settles it for me. Everybody's different. That settles it for me. Remember, I think Jesus is, one of the, is the most compelling figure in, in history. Well, what's interesting is when you look at a time here when Jesus says, and go back to Matthew 24 that had such an impression on me when I was 15 years old, he says, so when you see standing in the holy place, and now he quotes exactly that phrase in 1131, the abomination that causes desolation. And then he says, spoken through the prophet Daniel, then those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. Now, Jesus is agreeing. A lot of this was talking about the future, not the past. And so he's the future in his day which is the parts that didn't happen, are still talking about the future. But Jesus is quoting from this weird chapter, 11, verse 31, and saying, yeah, this is for sure going to happen, and Daniel's the one who wrote it. It's interesting because I want to have the same view of Daniel that Jesus has. So if 
if the things that happened in Daniel 11 were God predicting the future in 536 BC, and they happened exactly as God told Daniel, then when Daniel chapter 12 switches gears and talks about the end, kind of what Jesus is talking about here, when he talks about the end of the age, which is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, well, I think that means if, this, if it's the same angel saying the same message, then just as that was ridiculously accurate, this is going to be ridiculously accurate and come true as well, the future. We don't have time to get into all of it, except I want to just read three verses in chapter 12. I want to read chapter 12, 1, chapter 12, 2, chapter 12, 3, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. And Jesus quotes all three as being true. And here's what it says. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, there will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning, future, not happening from the beginning of nations until then, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. This is what Daniel says. Daniel says, there'll be a time when it will be unbelievable distress. Distress never happened before and all this kind of stuff so that those whose name is found written in the book, and that's just a poetic Daniel kind of way of saying God knows those who are his, they will be delivered. We'll talk about that in verse two in a minute. But Jesus quotes this in Matthew 24. Jesus quotes this. So Jesus says, for then there will be great distress. He's paraphrasing it. Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again, but for the sake of the elect, that's what he's talking about, those whose names are written in the book, the days will be shortened. Again, Jesus is talking about something future to his day, even though it also happened in 167 BC. He says that was a kind of a picture of what's to come at the end of the age. So then the next verse in Daniel 12, verse two says, describes what it means to be delivered. He says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth. Remember the Genesis three world we live in is thorns and thistles and dust and death. Well, at the end of the age, multitudes who have died, sleep in the dust of the earth, will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Doesn't really explain what this is. But Jesus takes that verse right there, the next verse, verse verse two, and he says this in, in John 58, a time is coming when all who are in their graves, those who sleep in the dust of the earth, will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to life, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Again, doesn't explain what that means, but those who are his will rise to eternal life. The others will be judged and condemned. So Jesus is just quoting again, Daniel 1, Daniel 12, 1, Daniel 12, 2. And now this is what Daniel 12, 3 says. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's when those who are rising from the dead and who go on to everlasting life, they're going to shine like the stars, like the brightest lights of the heavens forever and ever. That's poetic language. We're not all going to walk around like stars, but it's just a, a poetic language for what that life will be like. Jesus quotes the same thing in Matthew chapter 13, verse 43. He says, then the righteous will shine like the sun, kind of makes it even more so the lights, brights of heaven in the kingdom, technically the sun is a star, in the kingdom of their father. 
So what Jesus is saying is, just as much as this came true in chapter 11, all these things happen because your life is part of a bigger story of Genesis, or excuse me, Daniel chapter 12. And in chapter 12, there's going to be an end time where it's going to be incredibly difficult, but eventually God's people will be delivered. How will they be delivered? Well, they'll probably be killed, but they'll eventually rise from the grave and they will live forever and ever. Well, what kind of life is that? Well, they'll shine like the brightest lights of heaven forever and ever. There'll be a glory. And Jesus says they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So why does God put this incredible detail in Daniel? Well, it's because for the same reason he was giving it to those who were faithful Jews in 167 BC, it's because we always live. You don't think Christians in North America need, or excuse me, not North, well, yeah, but I was gonna say North Korea need to hear this. You don't think Christians in Iran need to hear this right now? And Christians, yes, in North America need to hear this, and there'll come a time where it'll become unbelievably costly to be faithful to Jesus. So what will you do? Who's in charge of your life? Who's in charge of your story? Who's in charge of the bigger story that your life is in? In spite of all the chaos, in spite of all the challenges, in spite of all the things that make you depressed, in spite of all the things you're not sure how it's going to end up, the chaos in the world, the chaos in our country, how is it going to work? What's the chaos in your family? What's the chaos in your relationship? What's the chaos in your finances? The chaos in your job? How's it going to turn out? I don't know, but all of this is part of a bigger story and God is in complete control. And Jesus subjected himself to the kind of suffering that the Jews had to experience in 167 BC. One of the things that Persia perfected was crucifixion of those they wanted to terrorize. And one of the things that Alexander the Great perfected even further was crucifixion for those he wanted to terrorize. And one of the things that the Romans then later came and perfected was crucifixion for those he wanted to terrorize. And the very thing that God subjected himself to when he became human was crucifixion. And God subjected himself to be beaten and crucified on a cross because he is breaking the Daniel 11 curse. He's breaking the Daniel 11 constantly, wars and rumors of wars and kingdom rising against kingdom. And that's all human history is. And then you die and he's breaking through the other side of death and he's taking the thorns and thistles and dust and death upon himself. And he's taking our sin upon himself and so that he can give us his righteousness so that we who embrace the cross of God as the righteousness of God become righteous in him. And he rose from the dead, just like Daniel chapter 12, verse 3 Two and three said. But Jesus was just the first. He did it as the first so that all of those who believe in him will do it at the end of the age. But it's already begun. The resurrection has already started. He's the first. Everybody will rise from the dead at the end of the age. But those who are his, those who embrace the cross as the wisdom of God and the righteousness of God, will shine like the sun forever in the kingdom of their father. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. For the joy set before him. Because of Daniel 12 set before him, he endured Daniel 11. Because of Daniel 12 set before you, 
you can endure. We can endure whatever Daniel 11 brings into our lives. You can endure it with faith because you can have hope that the chapter 12 of Daniel is going to happen. You can not just have hope, you can actually have joy. It says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And even now in the chaos, you can have joy because you know the joy of Daniel 12 is coming. Amen. Would you stand to receive God's blessing? From Hebrews 12 too. May God enable you because of the joy set before you in the promise of the God who controls all of history to the end of the age and has proven it, not just by Daniel chapter 11, but by Jesus dying and rising from the dead. It's already happening. May you, for the joy set before you, endure to the end. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today.